This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Tegan Taylor, flying solo this week as Norman Swan takes a well-deserved break. Today, tinnitus, that awful ringing in your ears. We look at what it is, what does and doesn't work to fix it and what the next generations of treatments might involve. Our medical system currently works on a sick care model, but a solution that focuses more on prevention could also have benefits for the planet. And why on earth would people who isolate before surgery be more likely to have complications than those who don't? But first, we've become pretty good at physical distancing, we're getting used to wearing masks, we're washing those hands and we're getting vaccinated in our millions. But one more defence we have against the virus has been getting less attention. Ventilation. There's now strong consensus that the coronavirus can spread via tiny aerosols as well as larger droplets. And ventilation is an especially important intervention in places where people can't get vaccinated. Schools and daycare centres. Kids under 16 aren't yet eligible for the vaccine and they seem to be more likely to catch this new Delta variant. Kate Cole is president-elect of the Australian Institute of Occupational Hygienists, and she has some ideas on how we could do better here. Welcome, Kate. Oh, thanks for having me. What are we talking about when we say ventilation? Is it just opening a window or is it more complicated than that? Well, in some aspects, it is really that simple. We really want to maximise outdoor air getting into our indoor spaces. So if we can do that by simply opening a window, then that's fantastic. But it's also about making sure we get as much fresh air into our indoor spaces as we possibly can and making sure that contaminated air that's inside those spaces. Uh, we've lost Kate there. We are just saying oh, that some countries are using carbon dioxide monitors as a proxy for just how fresh the air is. Is that something that Australia should consider? Absolutely. You know, CO2 monitors, carbon dioxide monitors, they measure people's exhaled breath. And we as occupational hygienists use this as a surrogate to assess COVID infection risk. So high amounts of carbon dioxide in indoor spaces generally means there's a higher risk of transmission if an infected person is in that space. It's an incredibly useful tool that we should all have in our toolkit. Do we know how much dilution of aerosols you need to do to like dilute the virus enough that you're not going to get infected? Is there a measure for this? Well, well no, not, not really. But if we're using, say, carbon dioxide monitors to help us understand if indoor spaces are a high risk, then we really want to see um, the level of carbon dioxide very similar to what's in the outside environment. So outdoors, carbon dioxide is around 400 parts per million or so. And if we're in an indoor space and our carbon dioxide monitor is in the thousands, then we know that indoor space is not getting really good airflow and all that contaminated air is building up inside, thereby making it a high risk. So let's talk about another high-risk environment, hotel quarantine. The WHO, the World Health Organisation, acknowledged aerosol spread back in April after months of calls from scientists for them to do so. Is there more that Australia should be doing to act on this in the hotel quarantine space? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we've seen countless outbreaks across our states, um, unfortunately, in hotel quarantine. Um, and we definitely need to strengthen up our systems in this area. We would, we should be seeing air-gapped quarantine, facilities really similar to uh, Howard Springs in the Northern Territory, because key risk areas in hotel quarantine, unfortunately, are shared spaces like corridors. 
So when aerosols from rooms make their way into corridors, then that contaminated air can move into other rooms. And if people need to access those areas, they can also be infected. It's not the most ideal model. It doesn't mean that it can't be safe. It's just really difficult to get it to that level that we are absolutely bulletproof and we're not enabling COVID to spread into our communities. And we've seen that happen already. Uh, a few weeks ago on the Health Report, uh, Rana McIntyre used the analogy that we wouldn't accept dirty water, but we accept dirty air. Do we need public health orders on aerosols? And how would you even police something like that? Well, we definitely need increased public messaging on the importance of ventilation and the importance of increasing outdoor air into public spaces. So that means, you know, shopping centres, but it also means workplaces like schools um, and hotel quarantine as well. It's really difficult and challenging in some circumstances to have a public health order around certain aspects of ventilation, but we could be, you know, providing businesses with really simple tools such as encouraging them to use carbon dioxide monitors and making limits, say, a thousand parts per million that if they get to that point, they need to really start increasing the fresh air coming into those spaces to keep it safe for people who come into that indoor area. Kate Cole, thanks so much for joining us on The Health Report. Thanks for having me. Kate Cole is the President-elect of the Australian Institute of Occupational Hygienists. Now, there are times when research can throw up surprises and challenge our understanding of what we thought we knew. And that's exactly what an international group of surgeons has found when they looked into whether isolating in the days before a surgery protected patients in the pandemic. What they didn't expect to find was that these patients went on to have a higher risk of lung complications, such as pneumonia, after their operation. And that risk was regardless of what surgery they were having. Dr Philip Townend is a surgeon from Gold Coast University Hospital and contributed to the research just published in the journal Anesthesia. He's speaking here to Sarah Sedgi. I guess we're going to expect that uh, by isolating people, you'd reduce their risk of developing COVID uh, and therefore lessen the mortality and the, and the complication rate after operating on these people. But the surprising finding of the paper was that actually you increase their risk of pulmonary complications, so lung complications, if you isolated them. And the longer that you isolated the patient, the higher risk to having complications in relation to their lungs, uh, COVID or not. How significant was that risk? Yeah, so if it's within three days, so isolating for 72 hours, that increases the risk of complication by 20%. Uh, three to eight days went up to 25%, and it was just over 30% if it was uh, over eight days. So, you know, it is significant. As you say, these findings took you by surprise. What do you think is going on? Well, there's a lot of uh, theories behind this, but the thought process being is that uh, by isolating people before an operation, they're less likely to exercise, they're more likely to, to sit on the couch. Nutritionally, they're probably not Uh, as good nutritionally and also from a mental health side of things. We do know that, you know, stress and anxiety has negative consequences for the body as as well. So I think it's a multitude of factors. It's quite complex, but the, uh, the data is significant. And what do you think this means for patients given that isolating or, you know, being more cautious around our movements is going to be a feature of our lives for, for a while yet? 
Yeah, so, I mean, it, it's, it's difficult and, and different states and have different problems that they're dealing with at that particular point in time. But basically, we need to in- encourage people to almost make that one hour of exercise mandatory and getting out and, and, and using that hour uh, to, to get some sunlight, get outside, do some exercise. And looking after your health in isolation is really important because within eight days, you can see that, you know, if you need an elective operation, you, you're a third more likely to, to get, you know, lung complex complications, pneumonia and needing to go on a, on a ventilator after an operation. Uh, it, it's obviously worse in, in elderly patients and, uh, and patients with other uh, medical conditions, but it is significant. And these findings were part of a, a global initiative that's trying to understand the, the safety and outcomes of surgery during the pandemic. Uh, are you able to tell mm-hmm. me a bit more about that? So this is part of a, um, a global surge collaborative. Essentially, it's centred from a, a hospital uh, called the Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Birmingham in the United Kingdom, a hospital that I used to work at. And basically, we were able to recruit over over 1,600 hospitals around the world and over 100 countries to be able to to get data really quickly so that we can make decisions. So it's amazing, you know, how this uh, pandemic has just... Uh, hasn't really divided us from the medical community, but sort of, but actually, um, you know, made us communicate better with one another and and uh, collaborate to get results fast. What have you been able to learn about what is safest for patients during the pandemic through this collaboration? So apart from the isolation paper, we have some indication and some information on what it's like on operating on patients with COVID. There's a higher mortality rate. If, if we operate on someone in an elective setting and they've got an active COVID infection, they've got a 50% chance of developing a, a lung complication such as a pneumonia or, or requiring to go on a ventilator or, or another condition called acute respiratory distress syndrome. And that increases the mortality rate. And a third of those patients will succumb and actually die if you operate on them with uh, coronavirus. But that's also dependent on the type of operation you're doing. You know, a skin cancer is different from a, an appendix is different from a gallbladder, which is different from a cancer operation. And But the general feeling is from the surgical community is that if it's an elective operation and the person has coronavirus, don't operate unless you absolutely have to because you're increasing the risk of that patient dying and you're also increasing the risk of the, pa- the people in that operating theatre getting uh, coronavirus and subsequently passing that on to, um, to patients and other staff. Gold Coast University surgeon Dr Philip Townend speaking to Sarah Seggi. You're listening to RN's Health Report, and I'm Tegan Taylor. A ringing in your ears, a dull hum, a constant static noise. An estimated one in six Australians living with constant tinnitus know this head noise all too well. But what is is tinnitus? What causes it? And why are so many people living with this noise in their heads told there's nothing that can be done to help it? I've been putting these questions to the experts. Thousands of years ago, people thought that tinnitus was a bewitched ear, that it was an ear problem. About seven years ago, something weird started happening in Victoria Dedenko's head. I don't listen to loud music. I'm very sensitive to sound. I did have a fall with my dog when I think back. It could be a head and neck injury. It could be all of the above or none of the above. Victoria Dedenko had tinnitus. She was hearing sounds that weren't coming from an external source. A ringing in my ears, a buzz in my head. 
It was just this noise, like a static noise, a whistling kettle, and it actually hurt. And it just seemed to really intensify as the days went on. It's a symptom which occurs in, well, most people. But for a chunk of the population, it can cause problems. If we're in a silent enough environment and we're really listening hard, we will all hear something, uh, some sort of sound that the body makes. That about 15 to 20% of people will become aware or will report constant tinnitus. So it's pretty common. That's Miriam Westcott, an audiologist who specialises in treating tinnitus. Most people who develop tinnitus will over time, if not straight away, habituate to it. A smaller proportion of people do find that very difficult and they can become quite distressed by it. And Victoria Dedenko was one of the people who found the phantom sounds very distressing. I just segued into panic attacks, depression. The sound was in my head. I couldn't get away from it. I was despairing. I went to the doctor for help and they couldn't offer it. And they said I would cope in time. But I was not told how to cope. Tinnitus is challenging to treat, but it is treatable, despite what many people are told by medical professionals when they start seeking help. But what is tinnitus exactly? When you're hearing sound normally, your middle ear picks up sound waves and your inner ear turns these into electrical impulses that are translated by your brain. But damage to your ears or the neurons involved in hearing can change the way your body processes sound. Tinnitus is usually associated with hearing loss, partly because your brain is a statistical machine. In the interests of efficiency, along with translating sounds it's receiving, your brain is sometimes also predicting what it thinks it's going to hear. This is normally useful, but can become a problem when you have a change to your hearing. Here's Dirk de Ritter, a tinnitus researcher from the University of Otago. My brain still predicts these frequencies should arrive, and because they do not arrive, uh, the brain says, well, better safe than sorry in, in many cases, and therefore it will generate the sound itself, pulling that sound from memory based on what it expects to hear. And that is the tinnitus that we hear. Tinnitus might be relatively common, but there's a lot of variation in how it presents. Most people have subjective tinnitus. Only they can hear the sound. There's also something called objective tinnitus. Miriam Westcott again due to some sort of muscular spasm or something like that, which can be heard by other people. But that is really pretty rare. Rarely, tinnitus can be a symptom of another medical problem, especially if it's just in one ear or it has a pulsing quality. For example, Meniere's disease, where people have hearing loss that fluctuates, can also produce fluctuating tinnitus. There are even some medications that can cause it, although this is rare. The sorts of medications that can do this include high doses of aspirin, not the sort of more milder doses that people tend to use. Some antibiotics, now these are used quite rarely and they're used in the management of severe infections and generally only when people are hospitalised. They're used very rarely because of the effect they can have on the hearing. Other medications that might affect the hearing, some antidepressants are known to cause tinnitus, quinine, some chemotherapy medications. Good tinnitus triage from an audiologist can help figure out what's going on so it can be treated appropriately. About half the people who seek help for tinnitus develop hyperacusis or reduced tolerance to noise. Around the same proportion can develop something called tonic tensor tympani syndrome or triple TS, where a tiny muscle in the ear called the tensor tympani goes into spasm. 
when the brain subconsciously feels a need to protect the ear. So it's it's a really interesting mind-brain-body phenomenon. A key difficulty with hyperacusis, triple TS and tinnitus more generally is that they're exacerbated by anxiety, which hasn't exactly been in short supply this past year and a half. Since the pandemic, the numbers seeking help from us have just about trebled. And audiologist Miriam Westcott says addressing that anxiety is one of the first steps in treating tinnitus. If the part of the brain that's responsible for dealing with fear and threat is all stirred up, then something like tinnitus can become perceived as more sinister. Every patient is different, but Miriam has a few strategies she recommends. People tend to monitor their tinnitus a great deal. And we try and discourage that. Monitoring it will keep it prominent and will reinforce to the subconscious brain that it's an important sound. If the tinnitus is going to be there, we want the subconscious brain to evaluate it as an unimportant sound. Because hearing loss and tinnitus often appear together, people sometimes think the tinnitus is causing the hearing loss. Miriam says that's a misconception and that hearing aids can often help by amplifying external sound and drowning out those internal sounds. It's not that nothing can be done. There's a great deal that can be done. Part of the reason people with tinnitus are often told there's not much that can be done to help them is because that was true as little as a decade or two ago. Dirk Ritter trained as a neurosurgeon and has been chipping away at the tinnitus puzzle for some 20 years. Every time we think, well, we've solved it. And when we then try to apply that in the in research and in the clinic, we unfortunately see that that does not work. It works for about 20%, 30% of the patients, but not to everybody. Is it the same um, 30% every time that it's working with or is it different? Like, are you getting closer to a solution? Oh, we're, we're certainly getting closer, uh, if not I don't think anybody would still be doing research if we would just have the feeling that we get further away. But we are not there yet. His most recent work is looking at disrupting tinnitus with a combination of electrical stimulation and psychedelic drugs like ketamine. It sounds full on, but it's actually similar to treatments that are having success in people with post-traumatic stress disorder and it's working on similar principles. Over on the other side of the globe, Research in guinea pigs is shedding light on the exact cells that are involved in tinnitus. Susan Shaw and her team at the University of Michigan have pinpointed the source of tinnitus to a place in the brainstem called... The dorsal cochlear nucleus. This is home to fusiform cells, which usually fire when your brain detects sound, but they fire at a higher rate than normal in animals with tinnitus too. Homing in on the source has allowed Dr Shaw's lab to start developing a treatment, but it's still in early phases. The treatment, like Dirk de Ritter's, involves an electrical stimulation, but this time it's paired with sound. And the timing of the auditory and the somatosensory stimulation is very important because if it's the wrong timing, it could do nothing or it could even make the tinnitus worse. In an early trial, participants had the treatment for 30 minutes a day for four weeks. It improved tinnitus for about a week before people returned to their usual levels. So the idea is that if we do six weeks, now maybe it'll take two weeks to return to baseline. So in that case, worst case scenario, then people have to do it on the weekends. Maybe they do it every day for six weeks and then thereafter they tune it up. It's still early days, but one thing Susan Shaw, Dirk DeRitter and Miriam Westcott all agree on is 
there's hope for people living with tinnitus. Yes, I think we don't fully understand the mechanisms of tinnitus, but we understand a lot more than nothing. Oh, I hope, but I've always been a very uh, optimistic person, is that within 10 to 15 years, we will be able to treat at least 80 to 90% of people with tinnitus with one of the techniques that have been developed, whether it's by us or by somebody else, it doesn't matter. As for Victoria Dedenko, it hasn't taken fancy tech. Working with a tinnitus counsellor, she's reached a place where she's now able to live with her tinnitus. So I can still hear it, but it's not triggering those panic attacks, the anxiety, and I'm not going into a a depressed state with it. I accept it, it's there, I'm living with it, I'm embracing it, but gosh, it took a long time to get there, too long. Victoria Dodenko, Chair and Co-Founder of Tinnitus Australia, ending that report. Now, for a lot of people, interacting with the healthcare system often starts with a symptom or feeling unwell, but we're too often intervening too late when illnesses have advanced and when more could have been done to prevent them in the first place. That's the view of an international group of scientists who think much more needs to be done to curb the growing numbers of chronic and preventable diseases that they say risk overwhelming our health system. Professor Luigi Fontana is Director of the Healthy Longevity Research and Clinical Program at the University of Sydney's Charles Perkins Centre. Hi, Luigi. Hello. Hello. You've set yourself a pretty small goal, just completely rethinking our healthcare system from treatment to prevention. Where do you even start with this? Well, it's a very complicated question. What we know is that uh, our healthcare systems are sustainable because, you know, there are several issues. One is the aging of, of the population. These elderly people are not healthy. They have several chronic diseases. The epidemic of obesity, especially in younger, in children and teenagers, is really causing huge problems because the sooner people, they become obese and develop insulin resistance, diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, several forms of cancer and kidney disease, basically they get sicker sooner and the system this is unsustainable so we need to rethink how we approach medicine and uh, we just published a paper in plus medicine discussing these these issues and propose some some ideas on how to start to to solve the, the this this major problem what are some of your ideas first of all i think you know one is uh, education uh, everybody know that uh, eating healthier, more fruits and vegetables and exercise, not smoking, not drinking is healthy. But, you know, we know better than that. You know, we have uh, really pinpoint the mechanisms so, you know, we can in a, in a very precise way prescribe dietary exercise and other lifestyle intervention so that, you know, you can prevent many of the common chronic diseases. So many of the common chronic diseases we see in our hospitals, they share a common metabolic substrate. So cancer, cardiovascular disease, dementia, many of the liver and kidney disease, they have a common metabolic substrate uh, caused by excessive abdominal fat, inflammation, and other hormones that are changed by these uh, uh, modification of body composition and metabolic health. And so if you work well in advance, 
you can prevent or delay many of the chronic diseases. Instead of what we do in our medical system is to wait for people to get sick because for many, many years they don't exercise, they smoke, they overdrink, they eat unhealthy diets. And then when they are 40, 50, they come to us, you know, I'm a practicing physician, not only a scientist, and I say, doctor, I have uh, blood in my feces, I have a, a, a nodule in my breast, I have chest pain, what is going on? And then, you know, we, 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 we apply this fantastic technology to make diagnosis, and typically we treat people with drugs and surgery. In some way, if you, if you allow me, it's like, for analogy, it's like if, if you buy a brand new car without a maintenance plan, so you, are not, you don't know what you have to do, you don't, you don't know that you have to change the oil, the tires, the brake pads, you drive happily your car until after probably 15, 20 kilometers, 20,000 kilometers, your car fails or you have an accident. You, then you go to the mechanic and say, how bad is the damage? And, and the mechanic say, okay, this is the damage. You know, we have to substitute this part or this part. Wouldn't it be better if we take care of the car from the first day and do all the maintenance so that, you know, we lower the risk of having an accident or destroy our engine and our car, instead of lasting 20,000 kilometers, is going to last 200,000 kilometers. So for yes, analogy... but, but car, car yeah. um, services cost money and so do healthy lifestyles often. Often these things are out of reach for people because of where they live or the, the food that they have access to. How do you overcome those? Well, I think, you know, you know, the healthcare system is much more expensive, believe me, you know, when you, when you have, you know, to do a, a, a coronary bypass or put a stent or stay, you know, you have a stroke or you have, you know, cancer, you know, the, the expenses are much more than, than uh, uh, prevention. But again, the system is, it, it's, uh, it's, uh, it has not been designed to take care from the beginning, you know, by teaching primary, secondary, university. You go through medical school. I work in U.S. at Washington University in Europe and now in Australia. And our medical students, they have probably three, four hours in, in four years of, you know, this uh, uh, very sophisticated understanding of how nutrition, exercise and other lifestyle have huge effect in in uh, modulating the risk of developing diseases. So if doctors, they have, mm, they don't have this full understanding of how it works, how can people know? You know, they have an idea, you know, that you have to exercise, that you have to eat better, but it's not sophisticated, you know, it's not really uh, ingrained into the, 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 the society the and into... So yeah. you're saying it's got to be part of our education at the school level, but it also needs to be a bigger part of our education when medicos are getting trained. What about the yes. cl what about climate change as part of this conversation? I mean, hospitals are resource hungry, so preventing disease is good for the planet in that way. But it also climate change adversely affects our health. How do you unpick this? Yeah, that's another problem because, for example, uh, you, as, you, as you correctly said, you know, around 8-10% of CO2 emission are due to hospital healthcare, you know, drugs and hospitals. Then, you know, millions of people taking medications, these medications, they don't disappear, you know, when you, when you consume them. They, they, they are excreted with the feces and the urine and they end up in, in the rivers, in the fish, in, 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 the, in the produce, we, the, the, the metabolites of these drugs, they, they end up in, 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 the, in our uh, food system. And there are lots of papers showing that. And so more people taking medication, more 
pollution due to these uh, metabolites. Another major problem that people don't understand is that around 18% of global warming and 20-25% of particular matter is due to intensive animal farming. And this intensive animal farming is also in certain parts of the world destroying forests like in Brazil to, pro to produce a lot of meat, a lot of beef. And uh, these... Uh, Intensive agriculture is polluting the, the rivers with pesticides, yeah. herbicides. So there are a lot of other issues linked to how people eat, what the people eat, what the people do, yes. that have not only consequences on human health, but also huge consequences on environmental health. It's almost That's like it's too complicated for us to wrap up in just a couple of minutes. Sorry, Luigi, we've run out of exactly. time. Thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Professor Luigi Fontana, Director of the Healthy Longevity Research and Clinical Program at the University of Sydney's Charles Perkins Centre. And now it's part of the Health Report where we open up the mailbag and joining me to help with this very important job is Health Report producer Sarah Seggi. Hi, Sarah. Hello. Where so, can people email us if they want to ask us a question? That's right. So if you've got a question, just email us through on healthreport at abc.net.au. And we have a few questions to get through today. So, Tegan, the first one is from Kusaji and she's emailed in and says love listening to you every week I have a question regarding body hair is removing body hair frequently a bad idea and are there any studies reported on the effect of body hair um, having it removed whether it causes skin cancer Oh, such a good question. And it allows me to kind of delve into a bit of evolutionary biology, which I love. So, I mean, if you think about it, humans are kind of weird in that we have not very much hair, but we actually have about the same number of hairs as other primates, great apes, but we, they're smaller generally, except for the ones that are like on our head and like our eyelashes and our eyebrows and of course our pubic hair. So like, let's talk about it. Um, so we don't have a lot of hair because it suited our ancestors to be able to sweat more than the benefits of having fur and hair, like to keep us warm. And it probably also helped us to not have as many parasites. But um, but then, of course, like we've got this pubic hair, which is kind of weird, and maybe it has a, a function to sort of like trap smells that maybe smelt sexy to our ancestors and that we very like carefully wash off these days or maybe it stops us from chafing that there, there would be an evolutionary reason for it but of course Kasaji's asking about like if we take the hair off is that a bad thing um, I guess the first thing I would say about that, like from an evolutionary perspective is we do a lot of things today that we didn't like evolve to do, things that might have been an advantage in the jungle that just like don't apply today. Like, for example, we wear clothes, which replaces hair in a sense, the way that other animals use it. We also bathe a lot, which kind of negates the whole thing about like maybe if sexy smells were part of the reason why we have hair, then that, that's gone. And we also like watch a lot of Netflix. So in terms <laughs> of um, taking the hair off, there does seem to be like evidence that bald, like if you're bald or your hair is thinning, that you're at an increased risk of skin cancer. So if you're shaving your head, or some people don't have hair and that they don't have much choice about it, you need to be more careful about skin cancer on your scalp and also other places. But the skin cancer is most likely on the places where you get a lot of sun exposure. And then laser hair removal, you know, in, involves light going onto your hair to sort of kill that follicle. But it doesn't use the same wavelengths of ultraviolet light that we're worried about in sunlight. So the UVA and UVB isn't in the lasers that they use for laser hair removal or in intense pulse light 
uh, hair, hair removal. And that, that sort of light is actually used for other medical procedures, including to treat skin cancer. So the Cancer Council says people who have a history of skin cancer or atypical moles should be cautious about laser hair removal, but there doesn't seem to be any reason to avoid laser hair therapy. And I couldn't find anything linking like skin cancer to just shaving or waxing. So Kasaji, I think you can wax, shave, laser hair removal or not, however suits you and your personal tastes. How interesting. (laughs) So much fun with that. So one for you, Sarah. Uh, Gilda is asking about very young children and vaccine trials. We want vaccines for little kids, but what are the ethics and how does it work when you're using kids in clinical trials to find out whether they can benefit from the vaccines that we need evidence for for them. Yeah, so I guess um, the first thing to say is currently we don't have a vaccine approved for under 12s. They're still in the clinical trial phase. So looking, I guess, at how these trials work, I guess it might be best to look here at the example of the Pfizer vaccine because they seem to be more progressed in their paediatric trials. They've been doing them for a couple of months now, haven't they? Yeah, that's right. So with trials, uh, with clinical trials, there's different phases. So you have your phase one, which is an initial safety trial, and it also helps you determine what's the safe dose here. So... With the Pfizer trials, for example, there are different trials going on for, you know, they break up the age groups into different cohorts. All of those trials from babies six months of age up to kids 12 years, they've all progressed from phase one. So they're now either in phase two or phase three. So getting that right is really important because, as we know, children, they're not just little adults. There's differences (laughs) in their immune systems, for example. And one interesting thing they found is that for kids sort of in that 12 to 15 years bracket, their antibody response seems to be much bigger than than the next age group group up. So there's the implications there for dosage. So basically, yeah, back to the Pfizer trials, they've now (laughs) progressed to the paediatric trials are now in phase two or three. So now they're going to be really looking at, you know, understanding the safety, identifying any side effects and, and, you know, importantly, seeing how effective these vaccines are. And so if if that is all determined and if it, it is proven to be safe and effective, what then happens is that that data will be submitted to regulators in different countries to consider for approving it for use. So here in Australia, that's our TGA. They'll have to make that decision when the time comes. So Pfizer are hoping to have that data available quite soon. In terms of ethics, clinical trials, they do have to adhere to ethical guidelines as well as codes of conduct. And the parent and as well as the child should hopefully be given the right information so that they can make an informed decision and give consent to participating. Yeah, so what it, I mean, you could do that with an 11 year old maybe or, you know, a nine year old, but how do you do it with the young babies? Like, it's so important for us to get this data, but um, I guess, I guess then it just rests with the parent to have that informed consent. Yeah, I think yeah, the age, the age definitely comes into it because obviously you can't really have that that conversation with an infant, but it is so important that the parent is is informed and is able to to give informed consent if participating is what they want to do. 
As a parent, I feel so grateful to these people who are sort of putting them, I mean, in adult clinical trials as well, but especially with kids, you know, I want to protect my kids. It's just, I feel so grateful for these people who are giving us this data so that we can then make informed choices about what we do with our own kids. Yeah. And actually on that, something to point out is that Moderna, which uh, has an mRNA vaccine, so that's the same technology as the Pfizer vaccine. It's actually looking at Australia as a potential place to hold clinical trials for their paediatric COVID vaccine trials for, for babies six months through to kids age 12. So that's up to the TGA to approve if they go ahead and make that application, but th- there could be trials here soon potentially. Oh, well, maybe I should be one of the people myself now that I've said that those people are so awesome. <laughs> Okay, Tegan, so we've got another question and this is from Susan. She's written in saying she's immunocompromised and points out that there are many others in this in the same situation as her in Australia. She's concerned about being able to produce enough antibodies through COVID vaccination given that she's immunocompromised. So she and her GP have been discussing potentially a third booster shot. Um, now, this is something that authorities in the US have recently made a decision on. Yeah, that's right. So in the US, um, very recently, like in the last week or two, uh, the Food and Drug Administration there, the FDA, has amended their emergency use authorizations, which is what they're using to authorise the vaccines there at the moment. So both the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna, they're allowing additional doses for certain people who are immunocompromised, but it's quite a specific group. It's people who are solid organ transplant recipients or who have conditions that are considered to have an equivalent level of immunocompromised. So in the States, um, the Centers for Disease Control says that's probably less than 3% of adults. And so, and France has done a similar thing where they have given the third, a third COVID vaccine to people who are immunodeficient. So I mean, your body's immune system works by, like, the whole reason why we give a vaccine is to kind of give your body that wanted poster to sort of be like, if you see this guy, kill him. And sometimes you need to show the immune system a couple of times for it to recognise it. And especially if your immune system is already weak that or, or compromised in some way, which is what we're talking about here, that they need a couple of reminders so that they can mount that effective immune response if they do face the virus. So, yeah, uh, the US has done it. France has done it. I don't know if in Australia that's something that is being approved yet or what the approval is. At the moment, I think all of the approvals are two doses a certain number of weeks apart, depending on the vaccine. But it'll be really interesting to see what that advice is for that specific group of people um, down the track, like um, Susan, who's written in. But also we have already got like plans to give people boosters everyone boosters in the coming year, like 15 million doses of our Moderna um, purchase is for booster vaccines uh, next year and beyond. So uh, whether that's something that's fast tracked for people with immunocompromised or not um, remains to be seen, but it's a really interesting space. Definitely. So if you have a question that you want us to tackle next week, please just send us an email and that email address is healthreport at abc.net.au. But next week, it'll be Norman and me back in the hot seat and Sarah will be in the room, but just not audible. Uh, Thanks for joining us. See ya. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.